Hi, everyone. You are streaming the February 2016 episode of the MAS Podcast. I'm Audrey Gray, and we get together once a month to talk about the city of New York, how it's faring, how it used to be, what we still love, and what we think the place needs. Our guests are New Yorkers, so you know they tell you exactly what's on their minds. We're fortunate today to have a remarkable mind in the room. He's an international thought leader in city planning and urban design, writer, teacher, past president of the American Planning Association, and in May of 2014, he was named the commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. Now, he's lived and worked in a number of cities, but he's Brooklyn-born, and he's back. So welcome to you, Commissioner Mitch Silver. Thank you, Audrey. It's a pleasure to be here. I have so many things I want to ask you, but let's start with what's happening right now, which is this pretty innovative program that everyone's watching and that we're right in the middle of called Parks Without Borders. What is that? Well, Parks Without Borders is really our intent to make what we call a unified public realm. Uh, Our sidewalks, our parks, our open spaces should really be connected. And so it's a program to take a look at the edges, the entrances, and adjacent spaces to parks to see how we can better integrate them so they connect better with neighborhoods. Uh, We now have $50 million, thanks to the mayor, as part of One NYC. And we are now... What NYC is a, is a sort is of overall, overall plan? overall plan for the city. Okay. And uh, we are now asking New Yorkers to nominate eight parks. We'll fund eight parks of $40 million. That's roughly $5 million each to help transform the edges of those parks to make them more integrated into the neighborhood. So it is so exciting. It is uh, extending the park out to the sidewalk, increasing natural surveillance, addressing multiple generations that may want to be at the edge of parks, but really making better use of our parks. So it is exciting, and already we've gotten over 3,000 suggestions, and the website closes in this month for those that want to. That hurts, ideas. doesn't it? You got 3,000 suggestions. Like, will you please fix my park? And, and you're saying this $50 million will fund fixes in about eight of them? But the database and all the suggestions will really inform us of the parks people care about. So while we could only find eight, uh, we do have other capital dollars, and we'll look at all those ideas, because now New Yorkers are telling us, here's a park, here's an idea, please pay attention. So we're very excited about the 3,000. Yeah, sure it's, it's good more. data, right? It's good data we can use. Yes. Now, so what are they saying? Because I know in New York, um, there are many, you, you probably know, probably thousands of these, where we have basically a block of um, asphalt with a 12-foot high fence around it. And that's the neighborhood park. You know, there may be like a slightly, uh, you know, a skew uh, basketball hoop, you know. Um, but we're dealing with a lot of these tall right. fences around parks. You know, cities are layers of history. And yeah. so we have Robert Moses, who built a lot of our playgrounds. Uh, they were low maintenance, uh, very hard, and they really got kids off the street. Then the 70s and 80s, there was this fear about crime, and so you saw more fences going up. And, and what so, were those fences like? To, I mean, if, I mean, they're slightly useful. They keep the balls in, right? right. And, and, and I guess in some ways the kids might feel safer inside playing. There are certain places where fences are absolutely necessary. So you have certain sports. We don't want the ball to travel out or handball courts. Then you have play spaces for children that you definitely want to have a fence around the perimeter. But a, a fence for a child's playground only needs to be about three or four feet high. It doesn't need to be 12 or 15 feet high. And so we want to right-size some of the fences. It's not taking them all down. And so Parks and Borders is now responding to the demographics and the generation in the 21st century 
we're no longer in the Robert Moses era. We are smarter. Uh, we now how to know how to design differently, and so it's our chance of now putting that next layer on history about how we design for our public spaces, and we want to right size those fences or eliminate eliminate them where they're not necessary. So tell me your vision for what one of those. Um, eight would be like? What would it be like to experience a park that really pleased you? Well, we actually are profiling one, Travers Park, which is a great example. We're already applying... What borough is that in? It's in Queens. In Queens. Uh, and so there's already one park that is now moving toward, should be completed sometime in 2017. It is exactly the type of playground you're talking about, 12-foot high fence, asphalt, and now the fence is coming down. It's now be an area that will now be a lawn. Uh, it's now going to be uh, basically oh, a 12-inch real grass. That's exciting. <laughs> but we're also capturing the sidewalk. The park shouldn't end at the fence line. It should go all the way to the curb line. So we're now incorporating the sidewalk into the park so it now becomes an extension. There's now flowers around the trees and there are benches so people could actually enjoy the edge of the park. And we just get additional public ground that before was just a sidewalk that people just walked across. Now they can experience the outdoors. So Travers is one they can people can go to our website. It's one we're profiling as we go around the city, talking about parks about borders. Yeah. And so that's one great example. There's I, I heard there's an ordinance in New York, and I, and again this is talking about your layers of history. That there are a lot of parks where, especially with the children's playgrounds, you're not allowed in unless you have a child with you. Correct. Right? Is that is still an ordinance that, that it you, is? But we're taking a fresh look about where that sign should be placed. Uh, right now, uh, in some pl- places, because you have playgrounds within a park, take Central Park, for example, where that sign is outside of that play space, but just allowed to go into Central Park. There are other playgrounds where it's on the perimeter of the playground, so you have a seating area with a comfort station, and then a play area for children. If it's on the perimeter of that entire playground, then an adult can't go in unless they're with a child. We're trying to find out what's the right place to put that sign, and how can we design our playground so that people of all ages can enjoy it without the fear of having uh, a concern for children's safety. So that's something that's also part of our Parks Without Borders initiative. Because obviously uh, our elderly people want to use these parks. They want to be there yes. on the benches. And, and we hear that often. It's saying I have to walk another two blocks to go to a public space where I can sit. And so there's something we're already studying right now associated with Parks Without Borders because that also could be a barrier we want every New Yorker to be within a 10-minute walk to a park. Wow. But if you walk to that park, you're a senior, sorry, there's a sign, you have to walk another 10 minutes. We want to make sure it's equitable for all people of all ages, our parks. Yeah, I want to talk about that big idea of equity. Um, when Mayor de Blasio named you, he said, Mitchell Silver has a passion for fairness and equality. He brings it to the work of government. He understands that we have to ensure that parks and open spaces are available in every community and are well-maintained in every community in this city. How far um, do we need to go in terms of equity in this town? Well, you first have to take a look back. Uh, That's always the first measure. And coming on board, to me, the word equity means fairness. Are we fair about how we distribute our resources? Are we fair about how we plan for our parks. So to me, the key measure is fairness. So we took a look back. We wanted to find out of all the money we invested in public parks, how many received less than a quarter of a million dollars over 20 years. That was something you can measure. And it turned out there were 215 parks. So we basically had 215 parks in our city that had been virtually neglected for two decades. That's not fair. And so uh, we came up with the Community Parks Initiative, which the mayor announced in 2014. And our goal now is to invest and those forgotten playgrounds and parks, we did 35 the first year, we're doing another 42, 
And our goal is now, I'm sorry, another 32, our goal is to make sure that we address those neglected parks that haven't seen investment in 20 years. That, in my opinion, is, is what is fair. We're also trying to come up with new techniques about how we care for our parks. Uh, we're now looking very closely at our mobile crews to make sure that all of our parks are cared for, whether it's Central Park or Prospect Park, people see the same level of care. So we're rethinking how we do our maintenance and operations. So we're sending a message that I don't care whether you're in Bushwick or Bed-Stuy or South Bronx, you will see the same level of care in your parks. That's about fairness. Yeah, yeah. I try to get my head around your job. You've got <laughs> 30,000 acres of land, 14% of New York City. I'm just getting this from your website. 14% of New York City is under your stewardship right now. Okay. Um, and it kind of blew me away. I The top 10 largest parks, I, of course, was thinking that Central Park and Prospect Park would be like the top two. They're not. They're not even close. Central Park is like the fifth largest. Prospect Park doesn't even make the top 10. I live a 10-minute walk from Prospect Park. I thought that thing was huge. And didn't you grow up near Prospect Park, too? Two blocks away from Prospect Park. Yes, I did. Oh, wow. But you're correct. I mean, the largest park is Pelham Bay and Van Cortland. Those are the two largest, well over 2,000 acres. A lot of it's natural areas, but uh, we do take care of all of it, and we have a lot of volunteers. I don't think we could take care of the park system we have today without our conservancies, friends, and volunteers. But we're broken up. We have uh, borough operations and borough commissioners. Uh, each one, we have fixed crews that stay in parks and mobile crews that travel around. Uh, so we do a pretty good job. Uh, yeah. We do have a lot of natural areas, and we have a whole natural resource group that focuses on not only our natural areas, but also along the coast and for a lot of the restoration there as well. So we have a pretty good team, close to 7,000 employees in total. Majority are with the maintenance and operations. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, it's a, it's a big job, but we have it down to a science. Um, and uh, I personally believe we do an outstanding job of keeping our parks clean. It's interesting to me that you grow up uh, wandering through Prospect Park yourself, riding your bike or whatever you, know, you were doing as a kid there. Um, and that... You know, I'm thinking the Prospect Park wasn't, like, in great shape those years, right? How was it back then? I don't think I noticed it back then as a child. Um, I focused on riding my bike through all the paths, over the bridges, just getting to know how to get to one place or the other. I, I did notice when I became a teenager when things started to change a bit and Prospect Park started to fall into a little bit of, of disrepair. Uh, so it is a surprise years later when I go back to Prospect Park, places that I rode and played as a child to now be commissioner, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but at the same time, it's where a lot of memories were formed, and I now know what parks mean to a lot of people. I mean, this is where memories were born and made. Whether it's a family outing, or falling in love, or getting engaged, or going for a stroll, that's what parks represent to New York City. And it's like a living room for a lot of people. It's exactly We don't right. have the space in our apartment. You took the words right out of my mouth. When we look at park design, we have indoor spaces, living rooms, and outdoor living rooms. I want to make sure where you put a bench, how people talk and converse, the views that you see, it has to function like an outdoor living room and not just having bench, benches placed indiscriminately. It has to have a purpose. Why is it placed here? What are you looking at? What kind of interaction? Not everybody will have uh, all their benches up against the wall or a living room where you have your couches up against the wall. Yeah. You want to have a conversation. So in some cases, you want those benches to be face-to-face -face or on a corner. In New York, too, a lot of times it's the place where people actually interact with each other. They see, you know, you can go through, if you're like a working professional in Manhattan, you can go through a lot of your life and never see a baby. You know? <laughs> yeah, this is true. You know? I mean... Yeah. It's like the one place where the generations mix. Yeah, it is, and it, you know, people talk about you know recreation, but 
parks aren't just for, for physical health, it's also for mental health. With a city as dense as this, we need those outdoor spaces just for your brain to breathe and relax. And there are so many studies about how therapeutic being in a park or trees you know, are on your psyche, on your physical and mental well-being. And I'm, I work in Prospect Park. That's where the Ars- I'm sorry, Central Park, where the arsenal is located. And I enjoy watching people come off the street and walk into the park, and you see on their face how they become relaxed. No noise, no traffic, all the things that you normally deal with on a sidewalk. You're now in a sanctuary, a green sanctuary, in a very special space. And uh, that, that helps people get through their day. I cannot imagine what New York City would be like without our public spaces and our green spaces. It just makes you feel alive, and it makes the city that extra more special. I want to talk to you about that philosophy a little more, because I've been following you on Twitter for a while now. (laughs) And let me say, there's a lot to see here. You've tweeted 7,000 times, right? Or almost. (laughs) And you talk a lot about these ideas of what public space actually is. Um, And I, I guess I'd love to dip into your philosophy of it all a little bit and to hear about like who you respected from history or currently who's working on these ideas. Like I'm thinking about Olmsted, right. right? The designer of, I mean, my personal opinion is, you know, did Central Park and then he fixed his ideas and then prospect. Right, right. <laughs> but other people feel strongly about Central Park as his masterpiece. Well, clearly there were two that were standouts and not that I met but read about. Kevin Lynch uh, was one. And Kevin Lynch wrote a book called Image of the City. And it was the first time it really connected how people associate with the cities. To me, I believe that cities are, you plan for place, but you also plan for people. And it was Kevin Lynch, how he kind of peeled away uh, the real essence of how a person experiences a city, the nodes, the landmarks, not just historic landmarks, but how you find your way as a child by looking at key landmarks and buildings and how you become familiar with the city. That becomes part of your psyche. It's like your internal map. It's your memory, exactly, your mental map. And so clearly Kevin Lynch was one. Holly White, uh, how he observes how people use space, which influenced an organization called Project for Public Space, uh, was also an influence about my personal style about how I look at the public space. People may live privately in their buildings, but the public realm, the public space is where we all come together, streets, sidewalks, parks, public spaces. That's where we all interact, whether going to work, going home, or whatever we do. And sometimes we take that public space for granted. This is just for cars. This, the, Even the term, the sidewalk, you're off to the side. And I just believe it should be better integrated because people, it's the experience people get when they go to cities. They don't go there just because they heard great things about it. People choose to go places because of the experience. While older generations may have been consumers of goods, the newer generations are now more consumers of experiences. They want to experience a place, a park. And so that to me is the major change, And but it's primarily influenced by those two individuals. And I'm sure a lot of mm-hmm. friends along the way, but both Holly White and also uh, Kevin Lynch had a major influence on my thinking about planning in public space. You tweet a lot about other cities around the world, and I know when you're the American Planning Association president, you got to mix it up with a a lot of different planners. And and you also had chapters planning in Washington, D.C. You were deputy director there and and in Raleigh. For years, you were the head of everything in Raleigh, right? You were the head of planning there. Do you you miss, like, being um, in charge of more than just parks? Being able to bring planning and placemaking to the parks department for the first time 
Parks Without Borders is one outcome, the Dreaming right. Parks Initiative. So I think staff is energized that we're rethinking and re- uh, how we plan for our parks uh, for the first time in a very long time. So uh, this is way, while be, it was way a beyond role, tree planning. Yeah, way, yeah, yeah. But being a planner and understanding the anatomy of the city right. uh, now helps me in my current role as being Parks Commissioner. What cities, are, and they could be anywhere in the world, are you watching right now and are especially fascinated with? Wow. Uh, I can't say there's any one. I still keep an eye on Raleigh because that's a place I've spent a lot of time. I enjoy uh, Sydney, uh, London, um, some of the cities, uh, San Francisco. So I can't say there's one. Houston right some now. Some things we can learn from them? Houston, in terms of how they're approaching parks, is a city that realizes now that they may have to stop sprawling. And so it's a turning point for them, a city with not zoning. But they have really embraced some of their underused spaces. They're plan for expanding their green space is phenomenal right now everyone's talking about houston their bayou plan uh so that's one place to watch when it comes to parks when it comes to planning uh i just keep an eye on a number of cities so i can't say there's one i just read every article i can i see these ideas that come out there was an idea you tweeted about copenhagen yeah was it copenhagen they're talking about um Sort of, I, I don't know, you'll explain. It's pavement, pavement. And when it gets wet, it looks like water, yes. <laughs> so, so when it when storms come, and yes. we're probably going to have a lot more storms, right, with, with climate change, this pavement becomes ponds, and yes. then when the rains dissipate, we're back to pavement again. That's correct. Fascinating. Yes, it is. So uh, the good thing about Twitter or, or just Flipboard, as you know, something else I use, is that it, it helps you keep an eye on what's happening around the world. Uh, and so you can see not every idea can work well for New York, but it's just great to see innovation of what's taking place and what's possible. And something that may be, you know, I just want to watch whether it's a trend or whether it's trendy. And a trend is something you certainly want to keep an eye on to see how it can work here. And so things like tactical urbanism or DIY. What, what is tactical urbanism? Tactical urbanism is basically a specific intervention uh, to change something special about a place. Uh, for example, in London, people were upset about the potholes. So there was a young group of people that started planting flowers in all the potholes to send a message, I want this fixed. It was young people taking charge of a city that they felt had been neglected for many years. In the middle because, of the street. They in the middle just, of the street. Yeah. They may block off a street and just want to have a, a yoga, um, uh, a day of just yoga. Uh, there's one example in Raleigh, well-known, where a young man in the middle of the night wanted to encourage people walking and put up signs about how far certain key destinations our city were to encourage people to walk by minutes. And so what it is is that it's a quick tactical intervention to really show people's love for cities and what needs to change without going through approvals. I don't have time to get permits. This needs to get done right now. I want to intervene because I care about my city. So it's tactical and it deals basically with urban location. So the term is called tactical urbanism. But it's more DIY. Do it, you know, do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, and and see how the government responds. Yes, yeah. yes. There's one I think in New York where they converted a phone booth into a library. So it's just these spontaneous ideas where people just are caring about their cities and want to do something without taking months and years oh, of the, the bureaucracy to get yep. something done as quick, as fast, as tactical. 
Interesting. Okay, that's going to be fun to watch. You're going to inspire some people. Yes. We'll see what turns up <laughs> overnight in this yes. town. The unsanctioned ones are always a surprise. <laughs> I bet. You bet you wake up and get a report every morning of, okay. Um, I want to talk about planning for climate change in New York City because, of course, we have some, um, we have so much coastline. Um, and we survived Sandy. We know how bad it can be. Um, we, of course, suspect that stuff like this is going to happen more and more frequently. Right. Um, uh, so where do you, I mean, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about the, I don't, I hope I get this term right, East Side Coastal Resiliency Project. Right. Um, but I'd love to hear your overall thoughts about it too. How do you approach something so large and unknown and scary? Well, first you do have to acknowledge, like New York City has, some states, some cities are still in a sense of denial that climate change is real and there are real threats we have to plan for from sea level rise to more serious storm events. That's something we now recognize as a reality for our future. That requires you to respond, and so this is a mayor in a city, uh, both the past and current mayor, they realize that we have to plan and do something. Uh, so there's now an Office of Resiliency and Recovery. Uh, they coordinate all the other agencies, but for us specifically, we have 14 miles of beaches under parks uh, jurisdiction, 155 miles of coast, and so we're taking a fresh look at what we need to do at those edges to make them safer and stronger for both the residents and businesses so that we keep them safe. There are different projects at different locations. Uh, in the Rockaways, that means that we now have a heightened concrete boardwalk that can, and we're now replenishing the beach to make it wider so we can deal with some of the beach erosion and storm surges. Uh, on the east side, coastal resiliency, we're looking at the edge of Manhattan to see what we need to do to harden that edge so that there is not flooding or storm surge into those neighborhoods. So that's on the scale that Staten Island, Coney Island, different locations we're trying to make sure we keep the public safer. So some of those turn into some real hardcore projects that are very expensive. I was going to say, term. how do you fund those? Like that's well, the the one in the the East Side Coastal Resiliency, there was a competition, and so it received funds from HUD. So that's being applied for that project. Uh, and that's called the Dry Kingdom. Line too, right? Well, people? the nickname people are now starting to call it the Dry Line. Yeah. Uh, and then some of them are federal money through FEMA for reimbursements yeah. of what happened um, in the Rockaway. So the sources vary, but you're right. It's very expensive. It's a new reality that we're dealing with. On other park projects, we now have a whole design uh, guidelines on how we look at each site to see whether it was in the floodplain. That wasn't done before. And so we yeah. now know there are certain elements we can and cannot put into those parks and playgrounds. So it's changed the way we plan for our parks. And, but we take it very seriously on all of our edges because this is a coastal city. And so we just have to plan differently going forward. Yeah. Commissioner, we do these lightning round questions at the end of our podcast. Can I fire them at you? Are you ready? You can. <laughs> okay. Um, question number one, Commissioner Silver, what is your fondest hope for New York City? That the number of people who care for our parks will continue to grow. We have about 1,800 community groups. And I see the difference when we have park stewards that actually help love and care for those parks. It's a major, major difference. So my hope with those 3,000 acres that we'll have more and more people come out and help us care for the parks. Volunteers. Yes. Greatest fear for the city? Uh, that the city becomes unaffordable. Um, as I look at all the tweets that I look at, uh, this is becoming a struggle for some of the major cities we have to make sure that people of all income levels that work in that city can live in that city to make it thrive. And so uh, that is my concern. And so I just want to make sure that the cities remain affordable for all people. 
can I just tell you, we've done five podcasts now and everybody has said the same fear. That is, everyone is thinking the same thing about New York right now. Yeah. All right, one place that you'd like to see preserved for all time. This one is simple and I photograph it often, the Brooklyn Bridge. All right. <laughs> Poems have been written. So yes. <laughs> you're not alone. Um, the one thing you'd like to see disappear forever. I would say this with a great deep of passion. Litter. Mm, litter. Yes. <laughs> All yes. right. It's, this is, this, I've seen a remarkable change in this city, uh, but I still think that uh, we can do a much better job, and I'm appealing to many of our New Yorkers, uh, that we just, I think litter is something I like to see gone. Yes. Okay, last question. If you had a day off, and I mean a real day off, nobody's watching you, um, you're in New York City, you are not working, you're not on the clock in any way, um, what would you do? What is your day off fantasy? What would you do with the free day in your hometown? Photographing New York City by land, air, and water. You go out with your camera? I would, yes. That would be my fantasy. The whole day. Somebody would escort me, I would do it on foot, then we figure out how to get up in the air, yeah. and then I would like to do it by water, <laughs> and I'd like to do it all in one day. That would be my fantasy day. That's a great one. A good one. I like it. I feel that's like a, a bucket list kind yes. of fantasy. It's a great one. Listen, how, how can our listeners find more about what everything you've got cooking in the, in the parks department? Where should we send them? Well, they can go to our website at nyc.gov slash parks, and we're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, so they're a periscope. There are lots of ways for people to follow us on parks, but if they want more information that could take them to all these places, the nyc.gov slash parks would be the best location. But uh, we love social media. Uh, we enjoy getting beautiful pictures, events, opportunities, great ideas for dates and parks. And so we have loads of suggestions for New Yorkers of things they can see and do. So I'd certainly, if they can't find it on our website, they can certainly find on other social media that we have yeah. as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. New super busy man. Really appreciate you coming in. Thank you, Audrey. Listen, you, another place to find out some great information about parks and planning and to get your preservation fix is our website, mas.org, mas.org. Thanks so much for listening in today. Write us with any of your thoughts or questions, and we'll be back again next month with another juicy conversation about this city that we love. Thank you.